Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. everybody let's get it on it's david summers hosting another stud cast with the tennessee stud ron fuller it's the only podcast on the planet documenting the real story of professional wrestling 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud please welcome the originator of the stud cast the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast we step back into the ring back into time with the tennessee stud Ron Fuller. Hey, Ron, Happy New Year. What's up, my man? Oh, Happy New Year and Happy New Year to everybody out there. And man, just uh, doing the thing day after day. And uh, no, I'm lucky to be, I guess, uh, living in the living in the state of Florida right now and down here in uh, nice warm weather. And I know that a lot of places in the country are really, really having the problems and I just feel bad for everybody. But, but we got a little bright spot, at least. We got we got a vaccine. Sooner or later, we're all going to get an opportunity to get get some of it if we want. So hopefully things are going to change, my man. Indeed. All right. Listen, as we get ready, and we got a great stud cast today. Y'all stay with us. TNstud.com is for the ultimate wrestling fan. Let's mention this. Autograph photos of the stud. You can get those T-shirts in black and blue. Autograph copies of Ron's new novel, Brutus, is available there, too. An incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches, interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. I mean, they are loaded. TNstud.com. Every studcast ever is posted right there, absolutely free, on the studs home on the Internet. TNstud.com. Check it out. You'll enjoy a ton of photos. There's a photo associated with every studcast, including today's. And I think we're going to be talking about that as the show progresses. All right. So what else is happening, Stud? Tell me what's going on. Well, man, we've got it. We got a new studcast coming up, number 37. It'll come out on Tuesday, January 12th. And it's going to be a tribute to uh, one of the greatest, and in my opinion, maybe the greatest wrestler, amateur or professional. Of all time, that just passed, uh, Danny Hodge, good friend, uh, and we're lucky we're going to be able to talk to a couple of other famous Oklahoma wrestlers in that one uh, that are very knowledgeable and close friends uh, were of Danny, and uh, that's Jerry Briscoe and Bill Watts. I think this will be a really touching tribute, and I'm looking forward to recording it, and I think Jerry Briscoe is going to be in part one and probably Bill Watts in part two. 
This guy, Danny Hodge, has an unbelievable background, amateur-wise and professional-wise. He was what wrestling was all about. So fantastic an amateur that he, the Heisman Trophy of Wrestling is named after him. The Danny Hodge Award goes to the best amateur wrestler in America every wow. year. So we're going to get into all that in uh, Super Studcast number 37. And uh, looking forward to that. Hey, I'm looking forward to learning more about him. It's amazing because a couple of weeks ago when we, we first learned of his death, we were talking off mic and it, it just amazed me how little I knew about Danny Hodge and the kind of respect that was garnered for this man. So that's amazing. We're looking forward to that on Super Studcast number 37. All right. So where are we riding to today, Ron? Well, we're going to begin by finishing last week's studcast, which I know we're a little late, folks. I hope you're back <laughs> with us again. But uh, that that one last week did feature a tremendous card, man, of January 2nd, 1977. We're just jumping into 1977. And and I, I know I promised last week I was going to tell an Andre story, and I couldn't get to it. Uh, but I'm going to tell it today, and I'm going to tell it early today in this studcast. And, uh, you know, that stud cast was loaded last week. And uh, this one today is pretty loaded as well. So I'm going to tell the story, uh, the Andre story first. And then we're going to talk about Andre's first two-day stay ever in Southeastern, which happened on this uh, January 1st, January 2nd, dates of 1977. And we're going to talk a little bit about the Hazard Kentucky card on the first night he was in. And we'll talk about uh, getting the new year off to a great start, man. Uh, and, uh, and it's hard to beat uh, your first two nights having Andre in your territory to for start real. it for, for a year. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's as good as it gets. So uh, And then we're going to get into today's training. And this one, we're going to be wearing the promoter's hat. And we're going to be back to dealing with Lamar Outdoor Advertising, the largest outdoor advertising company in the southern United States. And we're going to be setting up another one of those those freeway billboard buys that we started last year in 1976. And we're going to expand those buys in 1977. And uh, this stud cast also is going to be taking a close look at the second Coliseum show of 1977. And this show features the surprise return of two stars from 1976. We'll get into that. And also on this card is going to be a $12,000 match between the Mongolian Stomper and Ron Wright for the checks that the Mongol ate last week <laughs> after he beat the <laughs> heck out of Ron Wright. And my brother and Jimmy, then he <laughs> ate both the $6,000 checks. <laughs> so, so the winner of this match, a single match between Ron Wright, the Mongolian Stomper, is going to get that 12000 bucks. So <laughs> we're going to cover also the, the, the TV the day before that Coliseum card on January 9th. And we'll talk about the results of the card. And we'll also give everybody the attendance. And uh, then we're going to finish with the learning tree question from last studcast that I wasn't able to do, and I apologize. So we're going to cover that one today. And it comes from a lady named Barbara Clifton, and she asked, who do you think was the most important wrestler ever in southeastern Knoxville and why? Hmm. All right, that is an interesting question. I'm looking forward to hearing that. All right, it does sound like another great one, Ron. I got my horse, my steed, Dixie Dandy, saddled up and ready to go. Let's ride. Uh, well, I, I sure hope Dixie Dandy's a little better than Montezuma's Revenge you, you had last week, man. Uh, and, I, and I hope you got your boot cleaned off good <laughs> because I, 
I think you stepped in some of that revenge last week. Well, again, again, you, you're insulting a man's horse. I've asked you not to do that. You didn't have to say that at all. That 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 really kind of smells, Ryan. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Montezuma's revenge does smell. You know, I, I bet it did. So. All right, that's a, that's enough of that. I'm more concerned about your lightning being being able to keep up with my Dixie Dandy, if you don't mind. Let's see how you do. So, where does the ride start? All right, so so we're going to talk a little uh, Andre the Giant right off the day, and uh, and I apologize again for not getting to him last week, and this time he was in like I said a second ago for two days, and uh, and he was staying at his usual home in Knoxville, a uh, nice little uh, hotel there that uh, had a a very nice nightclub called the Intersection right next to it, and uh, anything with the bar close was great for Andre, and he was <laughs> this was his. He loved visiting Knoxville. So, uh, yeah, I picked him up, and we had to go on to the airport. They got in kind of late in the afternoon, and we rode up to Hazard, Kentucky, which was, for me, a long shot because it was probably the longest shot in the territory. It was about 150 miles to Hazard. Uh, but for Andre, he was like, Ron, is it, are we here already? <laughs> you know, these used to be in those cars for a long, long time in a lot of different territories. And we wrestled that night in front of almost 5,000 fans, one of the biggest buildings in southeastern Kentucky, in Hazard, Kentucky. And, uh, boy, those fans were excited. I'm telling you, man, Andre the Giant, they just couldn't wait to see him. And uh, and then to make you, Andre, happy, as soon as it was over, Andre says, we got to go, Ron. We got to get back to the intersection tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So most of the baby faces, uh, they were already there, man. Andre was in town. It was always a good night for the boys, I tell you then. <laughs> so everybody rushed out of, the, out of Hazard, Kentucky to get back to Knoxville and to get into the nightclub. And, uh, and obviously, the Heels knew not to show up there because they knew Andre was in town, and that meant that the baby faces were going to be in that nightclub. And, you know, it was kind of my way of making sure that Heels and baby faces it didn't get seen anywhere ever with each other. And they, they were very good about making sure it didn't happen. Uh, you know, everybody complied with the rules. They knew what it was all about. And uh, anybody that didn't uh, was looking for another place to work. So the last time Andre was in town, we t- I'm going to jump back on the last story I remember telling him about him. Uh, he drank over 100 beers. <laughs> and and we and remember, we, we we had them set a table aside by, by our table and, and put just Andre's empty beers on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at the end of the night, I think the figure was actually 113, but it was over 100 beers. So, you know, so, so this time we didn't ask him to set a table aside, uh, but he I guarantee he did over 100 again, no doubt. And uh, so we sat kind of in the back corner of this big nightclub and kind of away from people as much as possible. At this point, we're becoming very recognizable, boy. Everywhere we go in that part of the country, everybody knew who you were. And being with Andre, he's a walking billboard. No doubt. You know, (laughs) you you can't hide Andre. So so there was a few people next to us, but uh, they kind of left us alone to ourselves. During the course of this night, Andre, you know, they had a great time as always, and he always wanted to buy everybody's drinks. Uh, and I never let him do that. I, you know, I would, I would let him buy a few, and then I would buy at least uh, half as much or as much as he did. 
on this particular night, Andre sits, he's sitting down and the, and the people come and fill the table that's closest to us. Uh, it's two couples. And Andre's sitting down and we're all sitting down. So, you know, they don't recognize him and they don't have any idea that it's Andre the Giant and how big he is and that type of thing. So during the course of the night, Andre, he has his drinks. And toward the end of the night, somebody tells a joke and we're all laughing. And uh, they had these funky little chairs you sat in. And, uh, you know, they weren't near big enough for Andre, but he did his best to fit into one. And when this joke got told, everybody started laughing, and so did Andre. And he reared back in his chair, and his chair fell over backwards. Uh, and oh, it, no. And it tumbled over into the the guy behind him, and, and he tumbled into the table. This is the two couples that were sitting behind us. They oh. all end up in the floor, bottom line, and uh, their table is turned over. Now, Andre... Andre is a is a super polite person, and and he's a, he just it embarrassed him, and, and he jumped up right away, you know, because he wanted to say he was sorry, and he wanted to help pick the people up, and the, one of the ladies that had gotten knocked over, she was laying on her side, and Andre reached down for her first, you know, thinking he'd be polite. He'd pick up the lady first. Yeah. And uh, like I said, they never realized who he was or how big he was. And uh, when he reached to get her and she looked up, she was like, she screamed so loud you could hear her all over the nightclub. Right? <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, my God, look at this guy. And uh and so Andre was going, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. He's trying to, he's trying to apologize. And oh, the poor girl, man. I mean, uh, she won't let him touch her. And her husband gets her up. And uh, you know, he finally picks up one of the guys, and he just picks him up like he's a baby. You know, he's like almost puts him in his arms and cradles him, and then sets him on his feet. So uh, it was a little bit of a joke for all of us later on. We didn't laugh too much about it then. Andre was very embarrassed about it, but. Uh, it just shows you, man, the, how people just could not believe the size of this human being. And uh, and then, then Andre was just such a nice and sweet person. It's amazing how much uh, respect he had for others and, and how polite he was. Just really, really humble. What a night, though. We had a great night, uh, all the boys. And uh, everybody was like, well, I can't wait for Andre to come back. You know, that was always the thing, man, that happened. Oh, no doubt. And, and somewhere there's a there's a photo and I, I've seen this on the Web of Andre's hand and Andre is holding a beer. It's a 12 ounce beer and it just looks tiny. It, it looks like me holding a six ounce, maybe. But this yeah. this beer is just a, a drop in the bucket. Literally, you got ESP or something. man. that's my <laughs> photo for this episode. Number 181. Oh, oh the beer. Andre holding the can of beer. Oh, and like you say, it doesn't look like a can of beer. No, no, no. <laughs> so you can't see the beer. In fact, you can't see right. the can. You know, yeah, it's a it's an amazing picture. And uh, you know, then this episode is is titled uh, another Andre story. And uh, you know, I always love to talk Andre. What a tremendous character he was, and uh, what a great person he was. And Super Studcast number one was about Andre the Giant and some more of those stories and some of those drinking stories and a story about you taking him into Waffle House, which I always love to think about that one. That one is just 
will just throw you. It just it's it's amazing. Man, I love these Andre stories. I'm sure your listeners love them as well. I can't wait for him to come back again. All right, so I got a question. If you had 5,000 in Kentucky on Saturday, January 2nd of 77, and more than 5,000 the next afternoon in Knoxville that we talked about in the last studcast, how many fans did you have in that week? In the well, first That's seven- a good question, Dave. Uh, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, like I said, you're off the first two days of the <laughs> of the year mm-hmm. is a pretty darn good start. And uh, actually, we worked uh, six nights in those first seven days, and uh, we drew over twenty two thousand people. Wow! It was a new weekly record for us. So we opened up nineteen seventy seven with a new weekly record, and the first two houses, the first two nights. Crowds were 10,500. Wow. Just uh, an amazing what's happening in Southeastern at this point. Just it's crazy. No doubt. And I want to go back on Andre just for a second because he wrestled for 5,000 in Kentucky. Did he come back and also wrestle for that another 5,000 in Knoxville? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was in that battle royal. That that was the next day was that battle royal. So, yes, he was definitely back. He actually wrestled twice. He was in a match with partners with my brother against uh, Ronnie Garvin and Big Bad John. And then he went back in the battle royal. Yeah, he he worked both towns. And, uh, you know, that's that's one of the reasons we had that larger crowd. Whenever Andre was on your card, he was a sure bet to, to put asses in the seats. Pardon that expression, <laughs> but that's exactly what he did. He was great at it. When you rolled into a small town like you did in Kentucky with Andre in the front seat with you. I'm assuming he was in the front seat. And these literally were small towns. Was he surprised that you had 5,000 people that came in from from everywhere to see these shows? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was amazed, in fact. Every time he went to one of those Kentucky towns and we would drive through the downtown and it wouldn't be – there are 15 buildings in the downtown. And mm-hmm. he would look at me and he would go, run. Uh, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, you know, <laughs> where the hell, what are you expecting here, Ron? You know, and we yeah. pulled up to this building and, and he was like, big building, you know, like, yeah. wow, yeah. what the heck is they have a building like this for? Yeah. <laughs> uh, then when the crowd, when the bell rang, he went out and he looked at the crowd and uh, and then he came back in the dressing room. I, when I knew what he was going to do. He was going to go out and see what it looked like. Yeah. And he came back and he said, Ron, he goes, where did they come from? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, where, That's they, awesome. where did all these people come from? Yeah. <laughs> it was great dealing with Andre. But, oh, yeah, man, he, he, he got us off to a roaring start in 1977, that's for sure. For real. All right, that is so cool. All right, where are we riding now? What's up? Well, we're going to head into today's training, man. Uh, and this one requires us to obviously wear the promoter's hat. So we 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 were heading into the new year in 1977 here. And we experienced tremendous response from fans and huge growth in Southeastern in 1976. And I felt like uh, some of that growth, maybe quite a bit of that growth, could be attributed to the huge freeway billboard that uh, Southeastern ran in January of 1976. Those big freeway boards were 16 feet high and about 60 feet long. The billboard 
Well, we were on the 76 was perfectly located in downtown Knoxville on top of a four-story building at the junction of two freeways of Interstate <laughs> 75 going north and south and Interstate wow. 40 going east and west. Yeah. So it was even more effective because it was located in a bottleneck uh, downtown. <laughs> this was a big uh, bottleneck of cars and traffic every day it was called malfunction junction by the local people <laughs> you know and that's exactly what it was it was a malfunctioning junction man and so it freeway traffic instead of moving longer 60 or 70 miles an hour would just be bike bumper to bumper mm-hmm. so it'd take a while to get through that intersection and what are you going to do when you're sitting in the car and you're in an intersection like that you're going to look around to see what's happening Mm-hmm. And by golly, on the top of those buildings was this big billboard, man. Uh, actually, there's only two of them side by side. And uh, that was it. That's all you had to look at, basically. And, then, you know, so uh, the and the cars are backed up, like I said, for miles. And millions of people moved that, through that intersection every year in downtown Knoxville. Mm-hmm. So this backup of traffic, it allowed for what I call plenty of read time for my billboard. And if you're moving along, and I tell you what I mean by that read time, if you're moving along at 70 miles an hour and you're approaching a billboard, you don't have a low lot of time to read it, the information, or even to see it for that matter, even if it's a big, huge freeway billboard. That's why I wanted to return to this downtown location of the same billboard that I had the year before, because the traffic moved slowly through there and it gave the passengers much more time to read and remember what your billboard said. So the longer read time was extremely effective to ensure that passengers got your message, by golly, and even more important, that they remembered it. So another very important this type aspect of this type of expensive advertising was what was on your billboard, obviously. In 1976, it was a shot of two wrestlers in, in a wrestling move, a wrestling suplex. And I made that billboard even more effective by suggesting to the Lamar people that we put extensions on the top of the billboard so that the wrestler's legs, the one being suplexed, extended out above the top of the billboard. There was a unique idea. They went nuts. They were like, wow, are you kidding me? That's a great idea. So we stuck it on there, man, and you couldn't miss that billboard when you were driving through downtown Knoxville. You were able to see it from both freeways, Mm -hmm. and it was an absolute plus. And the main reason for spending the big money, to me, for the freeway billboard was the fact that you could do so much stuff with it. So let's talk about the 1977 investment in billboards. Uh, I was able to secure the same great location, that same downtown billboard that I had in 1976. But the boys pushed me a little bit this time. And in order to get that billboard, I had to commit to buy two more freeway billboards on those freeways. (laughs) So, ah. so, but it was worth it to me because I knew these billboards were going to be extremely affected, and we'll get to the reason for that in a minute. But uh, you know, they 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 talked me into two more, and they said, "Ron, you take these two. We'll give you the big boy." That's what they called it. That was their very best billboard in the market, and mm. they knew it, and they knew why I wanted it. And they said, "You buy two more, and we'll give you that one again." So that's basically the deal I cut with them. And the main reason I was willing to invest additional thousands of dollars was because I had the perfect picture for these freeway billboards. I mean, the absolutely perfect (laughs) picture. And if you'd like to see it for fans out there, you want to see this picture. 
you can go to my website uh, that you just mentioned earlier, Dave, tnstud.com, and you can look at the fierce photo of the Mongolian stomper. Uh, and it's on, you can look on the gallery. On the gallery, there's hundreds of pictures on the gallery. Yep. And on the Studcast page, you can go to episode 180, and it clearly says 180, and you can take a look at that picture of the Mongolian stomper. Oh. So, you know, imagine what that photo looked like uh, on a 16-foot high, 60-foot long billboard. Talk about impact and attention grabber. I mean, it no. ensured the Mongolian stomper was definitely going to become the face of southeastern wrestling. And by golly, he certainly did. Wow. So those three giant billboards went up the next week, 1976. The last week in 1976, they stayed up there for six weeks. All six weeks, we were in the Coliseum. We drew record crowds, not only in those six weeks, but for the entire spring run in the Coliseum that year. The benefits didn't end there. Once again, the promoter and me, had made a wise, I, I think I made a wise decision, not only for Southeastern future, but for my hockey days were, that were to come. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm going to deal with these people a lot. So this buy built me an even stronger relationship with Lamar, which was the biggest outdoor advertising company in the South. I was going to use them again for hockey in 1989 in Nashville. So the impact of that outdoor advertising buy was felt by Southeastern Wrestling. For me, basically, I thought it was felt for the entire year. In 1977, Southeastern Wrestling would accomplish another goal and become the number one sports event in that part of the country, surpassing even Tennessee football. That is just incredible when you talk about that. But And we mentioned that before, but Tennessee, of course, would only play maybe as many as six or seven home games. And that's kind of how you were able to overtake them, even though that at Neyland Stadium, they hold, what, 106,000 or something like that. Yeah, over 100,000, over 100,000. But, they, you know, yeah. basically they were about a five scene. They were 10 games a year back in those yeah. times. Yeah. So they were paying five at home, five away. So they were getting that half a million. But by golly, we were able to eclipse that half a million in 1977, 1978, and uh, – once we got to that level, we didn't we didn't drop much. We we kept kept bringing those people in every week. That's a, that's incredible, Ron. I also, well, while you were talking, I jumped on the TN Stud website and saw that photo of the Mongolian Stomper that you talked about a few minutes ago. He was one freaky character, no doubt about it. You're lucky the billboard company let you use that you got that space, <laughs> but you were able to work able to work that deal. I bet there was a lot of wrecks near those billboards. <laughs> uh, yeah, there there probably was, man. I never asked those guys about that, but gosh, I imagine the people driving from other parts of the country that weren't familiar with what was going on in wrestling in that part of the world. Yeah. When they saw those photos, they, they, they freaked, they, like you said, they freaked out, man. I mean, it, you know, and, uh, when I showed the photos to the Lamar people, I showed them the picture and, and they were like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> they instantly grasped, man, what I was good, what I was wanting, man, what I was headed for. So, uh, oh. yeah, it worked out really great for us, man. And, uh, uh, you know the old saying, Dave, a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, that picture was worth a hell of a lot more than a thousand words yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and worth thousands of dollars is what it was worth. 
I don't know how you could have picked a better one for the billboards. That's that's absolutely cool as ever. All right, so where to next? Well, we're going to go to the Great Carter Sunday afternoon, January 9th, 1977. We're in the Knoxville Coliseum. Don Wright is on the opener. And uh, he has a shot at the wrestler that his brother, Ron Wright, had beaten the week before the so-called original gladiator. You know, there was only one Cadillac tournament match on this card, uh, Rip Smith versus David Shaw. The tournament was winding down. The beautiful Cadillac is going to be given away five weeks from this show. So we're getting toward the end of that big tournament. Bob Armstrong and I were wrestling on this card against Louis Tillette and a guy who would get booed out of the building, the surprise return of the great heel, Norvell Austin. So Norvell comes back to Southeastern on this card <laughs> as a surprise. We don't tell anybody much ahead of time. So a special challenge match was next, and this one's for that $12,000 upon the Battle Royal the week before. You know, that's the one where Mongol, <laughs> Mongolian Stomper Ate mm-hmm. both the $6,000 checks and swallowed them. And uh, Ron Wright was in this match facing the new star by himself. Wow, not a not a good place to be. $12,000 is going <laughs> to the winner. Southeastern Tag Championships on the line in this night. Uh, no DQ. And, and the fall had to be won by submission. It's Jimmy Golden and Dick Steinborn, who's recently returned, against the champions, Kurt and Carl Von Steiger. The main event was for the Southeastern Championship. Ronnie Garvin was managed, obviously, by Big Bad John, but he's facing the champion. Now he's lost the belt. The Santa Claus got him beat on Christmas night. <laughs> and uh, Robert Fuller is the new champion. And I'm managing Rob that night. So I'm wrestling partners with Armstrong, and I'm going back to manage my brother in the main event. That's pretty cool. Another fast, fantastic card right there, Ron. All right, I think we should take a break here before we look at the TV from the day before this event. That TV was on Saturday, January eighth of seventy-seven. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. When I yeah, that, the, is, are you sure it's the eighth, uh, not the seventh day? Wait. Wait a minute, Ron. I know I'm right about this. I have my TV calendar right here. <laughs> okay. Okay. You knew. Wait a minute. You knew the date was right before you even got me on that. Either either way, we're going to be back after the break. Y'all stay tuned. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Finish your holidays with a laugh. A Fuller Brothers Christmas, joined by cousin Jimmy Golden, turns into Robert doing undercover work for the CIA with a Chinese girl in Dallas. What? Just one of the many hilarious stories, and some with real meaning, in the history of the most unusual Welch family holidays. Maybe the best three storytellers in wrestling. Out of control. All at TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. Also, small town Tennessee boy dreams of being a wrestler gets trained by Herb Welch of the Fuller Golden family, becomes a star, and eventually a WWE Hall of Famer. You couldn't write a story like this. It's true. And Coco Beware lived it. Ride with the stud and discover how the impossible happened at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Three hours of unique wrestling entertainment, only $2.99. Find out for yourself why they call this the best deal in wrestling hey welcome back another stud cast david summers here with the tennessee stud ron fuller and tnstud.com that is the website 
of the Tennessee Stud, tnstud.com. Autograph photos are available there. T-shirts in black and blue. Mine is blue. I'd like to have one of those black ones, please. Autograph copies of Ron's new novel, highly acclaimed. It is called Brutus, an incredible and historical DVD collection loaded with matches and interviews from the Continental and Southeastern Wrestling Days. TNstud.com is the stud's home on the World Wide Web. And another reminder about Super Studcast number 36 is going to be really good. Creating a Christmas feeling with the very merry Fuller Brothers Christmas. Joined in progress by Jimmy Golden and Coco Beware's fantastic career. From small town Tennessee boy to WWE Hall of Fame. That's a ton of fun right there. Coco Beware. All right. All right, Ron. I checked it out. We are definitely going to be talking about the TV on Saturday, January 8th, 1977. Tell me I'm right. Yeah, yes. Yes, you're right. I'm not going to play with you anymore, Dave. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. I'm not a toy. Not okay. A- so, all right. So, this is another great TV, man, uh, with several huge surprises for studio fans and those at home, obviously, as well. Let's open the show alone for the first time in many weeks. Most of the time, he's always opening his show. Uh, he's got the still shot behind him. But he has nobody sitting at the desk with him like he normally does at the set. Behind him on the still shot is that big photo of the Mongolian stomper. And uh, somebody took the photo as the stomper was eating one of those checks that he ate up after the Battle Royal. And they caught him with a mouthful of paper, I guess. And and that was the shot from the Sunday before in which... uh, the mongrel and Ron Wright had won the won the money, but the mongrel decided to eat the checks rather than make sure that Ron Wright got any. I, I have to. This is gross, but I have to ask: Did anybody go through the stomper scat to see if they could retrieve the check? Ch- don't answer. Never mind. <laughs> Sorry, ne- never mind. Oh boy! boy. <laughs> now you're back to the Montezuma's revenge. Horror. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So let's just keep it. Let's keep it where it's at, okay? Yeah, I'm but, good with that. Yeah. So let's welcome, obviously, the opening of the show, the home audience, and uh, you know, and uh, and he started to explain why he had this shot behind him, and why there was nobody at the set with him as usual, and he he told a brief story about how the Mongolian stomper had arrived in southeastern uh, the Sunday before, and had basically taken over the event created pandemonium uh, in the Coliseum uh, both times that he came to the ring. And he told how Southeastern had sent a letter to the stomper the next day informing him or to whom it may concern because they didn't know for sure whether he he could read the letter or or know what to do with it. So (laughs) they sent him a letter anyway that that, uh, whoever it concerned that, that the Mongolian would not be welcome back to Southeastern until he had a manager that would be able to control him. Ah. So Les said that uh, no one had answered the letter and there was no sign of the Mongolian stomper at the studio that day or since last Sunday. So, and he just continued on, you know, he's by, by himself there, you know, and they, so he continued this dispensing information that he said when there was a, that all of a sudden as he's beginning to talk again, there's a pounding at the side door of the studio where the fans come in and it's always locked before they start recording shows because they, they want to keep it soundproof in that, in that building, obviously. 
So there's a big bang, bang, bang on the door, which has never happened. And, uh, you know, so even less stops talking. He's like, what the heck is that? You know, and uh, one of the cameras uh, backs off a little bit and he picks up a shot of the door. We got one policeman that worked these TV shows and the guy, the guy was there every week. And so he goes over and uh, he opens the door and in comes two surprises, by golly. The Mongolian stomper, dressed to wrestle, just roars into the building, man, right past the front row of fans who just turn their chairs over trying to get out of his way. And he's closely followed by the one and only Don Carson. Oh, no. Are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. So Carson, man, he raced uh, to catch up with the stomper and he grabbed him around the neck and he tried to control him enough to get him to go over to the set. So he gets over to the set and he sits down with Les. And, you know, Stomper's just pacing back and forth behind him as soon as he sits down. And Carson starts out by saying, you know, to Les, you know, hey, that, hey, you know, hey, Les, I, you know, I, I'm basically, I'm sorry for arriving late, but but my new man here, you know, and he, he kind of pointed at him behind him. He goes, he's very difficult to control, <laughs> to say the least, right? So, yeah. Well, Les asked Don, Les is, you know, Les, he likes his show. He likes to know what's going on. He don't like surprises. And, uh, you know, this is a horrible surprise for Les. And Les is mad, and he 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 lets Don know, and he goes, what are you doing here? <laughs> right? You know, so Carson kind of fumbles around for an answer, and then Les quickly reminds him that, you know, Don, you lost two loser-leave town matches, two loser-leave southeastern matches, since the end of September, and you're not allowed back in September for at least a year. Mm. So Don disagreed with him, obviously. He always disagreed with Thatcher. And he and he says, you know, uh, I was forced, Thatcher, into, into three loser-leave Southeastern matches between July 23rd and the end of this year. Three, three times they tried to get me out of here, basically. Mm-hmm. He said all three of them had been demanded by Southeastern officials. And I had no choice but to take those matches. And he said, obviously, Southeastern wanted me out of here, but wouldn't they didn't have any wrestlers here that could beat me to do it, basically. And um, so he <laughs> says, the first loser leave was against Robert Fuller, and it was on July 23rd. And I won that match, you know. And then Southeastern officials, he said, couldn't stand that fact. So less than two months later, they forced me to accept another loser leave Southeastern. And this time it was against Ron Fuller, you know? <laughs> so Les said, he said, Les, Les is pretty sharp. So Les says, well, Don, you didn't mention how you won against Robert Fuller, but you are correct about the second match. You did lose to Ron Fuller and you had to leave. So Carson began again saying, you know, he was asked by Southeastern officials, called him up. He said, and they called me up and they asked me, there was a big world championship match on October 10th between Ron Fuller and Terry Funk. And he says, they asked me if I would like to get have a match, what they were going to call a Southeastern Returns match. And uh, I was going to be able to wrestle against Robert Fuller. And the winner got to stay, got to come back and stay. He said, I asked him, he says, you guys are setting me up, you know. And he says, no, no. He said, they told me right then. And now he's telling us this story. He said, they told me. That, yeah, he's going to get a be a fair match. And, uh, you know, he said, but then they rigged the match. And he goes, Robert Fuller was helped by his brother Ron that night. 
and uh, and that's the only way they could beat me. And then Southeastern disbarred him as a wrestler for at least one year. So Les is kind of smiling at this point, like, yeah, well, what, what, so what, Don? So then Don kind of slowed down, man, and he got real serious. And he said, uh, he said, Thatcher, he said, notice, I said, if I lost that match, the contract said I could not return as a wrestler for one year afterward. A wrestler. A wrestler. There mm-hmm. you go. Mm-hmm. Now, Les is getting upset with Carson because he's barged in here and he's messed up his show. And, he, you know, and plus he's taking up time that he's not entitled to. And Les says, I'm going to ask you one more time, Don. What are you doing here? So, <laughs> so, so uh, this is good. I remember this. Gosh, man, this was great. Uh, so Don looked straight into the and he smiled this real big smile, man. <laughs> and he said, he said, and he never looked at less. He's talking to the people at home now. And he says, per contract, Thatcher, I may be barred as a wrestler from here. But nothing in that contract said I couldn't return to Southeastern as a manager. <laughs> and course. he said, that's exactly what I'm doing here, Thatcher. He says, I'm going to manage the monster behind me. <laughs> I'm going to make your life. Southeastern officials' lives, those pretty boy wrestlers' lives, and all these fans watching out there, their lives miserable. (laughs) He said, I I have behind me the toughest and wildest human on earth. And when he says this, the stompers suddenly turns around, and you saw that billboard. That was the the stare he threw into the camera, you know, when Carson says, I have the toughest and wildest human on earth. Stomper stopped pacing, boy, he turned and stared right into the camera. That same pose, man, is on those billboards. <laughs> so, And his stare was absolutely chilling. So Carson grinned from ear to ear, and then he finished. He says, Les Thatcher, Southeastern official, and all you hillbillies out there, <laughs> hear me now. Standing behind me is my dagger, and he pointed over his head, at the stomper, who was still staring into the camera, just as mean as he was before. He says, I'm going to get even. I'm going to create havoc here in Southeastern, the likes of which no territory in the world has ever seen. I'm going to turn this crazy man loose on everyone and everything that gets in my way. From here on out, Thatcher, Southeastern wrestling belongs to me. So saith Don Carson. So saith Don Carson. He laid down the law. He jumped up. He got the behind the Mongolian stomper, and he pushed him and guided him back through the same door. They entered the studio, and they were gone. <laughs> so Les is sitting there. He's speechless. He's like, what, what do I do? What do I have to say to that? And the audience was speechless, too. And it didn't get any better for him. You know, the first match was introduced immediately because, obviously, Les has got nothing to say now. And out pops Ronnie Garvin, managed by Big Bad John. So for the fans, it was the second downer of the day already. <laughs> and uh, Garvin obviously crushed another windpipe, and Big Bad John prepared the body for hell, man. It was, uh, you know, and then John and Garvin go to the set. Big Bad John tore into Robert, and the match was upcoming the next uh, day. And how he had won the title, Robert with the use of his brother playing Santa Claus two weeks earlier, 
and how the fullers robbed Garvin of his belt, John said, this isn't Christmas anymore, and there is going to be no Santa Claus tomorrow in the Coliseum. He said, this time, only the devil will be there. And then he roared in that old gravelly howl of a voice he had. He said, Garvin will be taking care of business in the ring while I'll be taking care of Ron Fuller outside the ring. We want our belt back, and we're prepared to do anything to get it. He said, maybe even prepare two bodies for hell tomorrow. <laughs> now, now that is an opening segment right there. I, I think I got a goose bump or two. I hope that's what that is. All right, so what's next, Ron? Uh, second match was another surprise. You know, I said we had some surprises. And so Rip Smith and Don Canoodle, they come out. They're a tag team. First time they tagged on TV together. And a, and a darn good team, basically. Two young guys are really going places. The fans had their first chance to cheer in the show, man. It had been a real downer. But that didn't last long because Louis Tillette comes popping out into the studio. And guess who's behind him? Nobody knows is going to be there. Norvell Austin pops back uh. into the studio. Oh, boy. Fans are all cheering like crazy. And all of a sudden, they go totally opposite, man. They let Norvell know how they felt about his return. I mean, they were booing like crazy. It was a great tag match, uh, and it was finally won by Norvell, who hit Rip Smith with one of those flying headbutts, and uh, that was a pretty good move for Norvell. He won a lot of matches with it. Mm-hmm. Norvell and Louis Tillette, they went to the set with Les, and me and Bob were, were set up in Studio B. We're going to be wrestling against them the next day in the Coliseum. Norvell took most of that interview And he was calling himself. He had a new name for himself. He wanted to be known from this point forward as the Junkyard Dog. Ah. And this was the first time that any fan in the sport of wrestling had heard a wrestler call himself the Junkyard Dog. It was long before Sylvester Ritter uh, was going to arrive in Southeastern. And uh, he's going to later become a very famous Junkyard Dog for Mid-South Wrestling. Hmm. But uh, Norvell Austin was the first junkyard dog. So Bob and I, we waited him to finish his deal about being the junkyard dog. And Bob and I had a little bit of fun. But we talked about how first we talked about how few times we'd been tag partners in our careers and how we were looking forward to both of us getting to yank the junkyard dog's chain. (laughs) We can't wait to deal with the junkyard dog. So. Personality profile on this show was a great one. Ron Wright watched with Les both of the wild matches the Mongolian Stomper had been in on the Sunday before. They watched and talked about how Stomper had annihilated Don Cornoodle in his first Southeastern match ever and how he bloodied him up badly in it. And then in the Battle Royals final tag team match, how the Stomper was crazy and totally out of control. So out of control, he attacked Ron even though Ron was his own partner for the tag match. So Ron was still patched up from the attack. He was still with bow bandaged up. And so it wasn't over. Then they watched both of the guys on the other team, Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden, became bloody as well in this part of the video. Ron said he had never seen anything like this Mongolian stomper. And with an angry Don Carson in that maniac's corner, he said, heaven knows what's going to happen in Southeastern wrestling from here on. So the last thing he watched was the stomper eating his check. 
you know, and then Ron said that I ain't never seen nothing stupid. Nobody's stupid. That's stupid for sure, man. He goes, what kind of <laughs> idiot eats money? You know, he said, he said, he said, uh, he said, you know, I wanted my 6,000 I was entitled to, but Southeastern decided the winner ought to get a shot at the whole 12. I had no choice but to give that Mongolian now at this point a good old Tennessee dog whooping, you know. <laughs> and boy, they erupted in the studio, man, you know. Yeah. Ron had watched all this stuff go down. He would lost his $6,000. Now he had a chance at 12, a dog whipping coming. I mean, this TV is turning into a good one. So Southeastern Tag Champions, Von Steigers, they got a quick win, the third match, over a couple of really scared young boys that were, who were blown away by the fact they're going to be wrestling against these Germans. And they both won the match with the same hold. They both had the very painful Boston Crab on those young boys. And um, they were making a statement to their opponents that they were wrestling the next day. They were going to be wrestling Jimmy Golden. And Dick Steinborn for their championships. And the match could only be won by the submission move. And uh, there was no DQ in the match. So somebody's going to have to give up in the match the following day. So both of those two teams that made the interviews at the same time after that match. And it was really going to be a special match the following day. The last match was the Southeastern champion, Robert Fuller. And he had won the title on Christmas night with Santa's help, uh, you know, like uh, Big Bad John had mentioned earlier. And uh, Rob's wrestling against the original Gladiator. So um, Rob had a chance to wear his southeastern belt into the ring for the first time. Boy, he got a real big round of applause. Fans were happy to see that belt around somebody's waist but garbage. And it was the first time he had been able to wear it since he had won it. So this was a really good competitive match on TV, just like that tag match earlier with Tillette and uh, Norvell. The original gladiator, Jim Dalton, he was a quality wrestler. He could really wrestle. And he, he looked good until all of a sudden, out of nowhere again, Dick Steinborn appeared in the studio. So the gladiator made another critical mistake. He left Rob lying on the mat, and he went to the ropes to exchange pleasantries, let's call it, with Steinborn. <laughs> right. And, uh, and Rob hit him with an O'Connor roll and one, two, three, that was all over. And the gladiator got up looking for Steinborn and he is gone. He he's already disappeared from the studio. So Rob and I took the last interview. We talked about how important that we were going to be together the next afternoon and that I was going to be in Rob's corner instead of uh, Big Bad John being in Garvin's corner and the other people not having somebody to watch John. I promised Rob that Big Fat John wasn't going to be the reason he lost if he did, by golly. So, <laughs> so I got to throw in my Big Fat John for the show, too. <laughs> Good measure. Man, it sounds like a great TV show with some great surprises and a little bit of everything. All right, where to now, Ron? Well, how about the results of those matches that following day? So uh, let's uh, start with the first match. Don Wright beat the Gladiator. Uh, Dick Steinborn made another appearance at ringside. And the Gladiator getting pretty frustrated about these appearances by Steinborn now. And especially since that uh, every match that the Gladiator had since Steinborn had come back, Steinborn had gone down and caused him to lose in one way or another. So, you know, he's he's really getting frustrated about Dick Steinborn. What's this guy all about? Leave me alone. 
Rip Smith beat David Schultz in the only Cadillac tournament match on this card. And my partner, uh, Bob Armstrong, and I uh, wrestling against Norvell Austin and Louis Tillette. That match was a great match. It was a barn burner, man. It was a tremendous match. Bob got on Norvell so heavy at one point that Norvell left the ring. He got out and he got the microphone away from the announcer. And he asked me and Tillette to leave the ring. So him and Armstrong could find out who was the better man. <laughs> so I was like, oh, well, this is a joke, Norvell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you better be careful here. So so I did. I walked up back toward the dressing room door and uh, Tillette left the ring and went to the dressing room. And uh, boy, fans went wild then, man. And Bob, boy, when he got in the ring with him by himself, he turned on the afterburners and the junkyard dog left the junkyard. <laughs> Quick. I mean, he ran to the dressing room where he was counted out. And uh, I went back to the ring and then raised my hand with Bob. We had won the tag match and fans got a great deal. And uh, and they saw Norvell take a powder quick. Don Carson made his first appearance as the manager of obviously the scary Mongolian stomper. I guess is a good word for him is scary. Mm-hmm. Fans gave Carson an extremely cold reception, man, when he came in that building. <laughs> they they weren't happy to see Don Carson anymore, especially now as a manager and a manager of a monster. So, so Stomper wasn't impressed with what <laughs> the reception. He didn't care. Once again, he left Ron right. Poor Ron bleeding bad again, man. He won the 12 grand. But this time, Carson collected the check (laughs) before the stomper could eat it. (laughs) And this match was very good, considering it was only the second time stomper had been seen in the Knoxville ring. I was really amazed. Uh Obviously, this duo of stomper and Don Carson was going to get over. In the Southeastern Championship match, Jimmy Golden and Dick Steinborn had the Von Steigers beat, but the referee was down. Uh, he was actually on the floor. It got knocked out of the ring. Steinborn had a sleeper on Kurt Von Steiger, and Jimmy Golden had a Boston Crab on his brother Carl. And uh, they were waiting on the referee to hear the German give up, you know. But uh, Norvell Austin, before the referee could get back into the ring, Norvell Austin hit the ring, and he nailed Golden, and he nailed Steinborn. And the ref was still down. Kurt put the Boston Crab on Steinborn, and Austin headed for the dressing room. The only problem was for Norvell is Bob Armstrong had seen him go to the ring, and he got over and waited on him in the aisle as he was coming back to the dressing room. And he tore into Norvell out there in the building, man, and that place exploded, man. And uh, Norvell had no place to go but run back to the ring now. And the ref got a submission from Steinborn. He raised the German's hands. But by then, Norvell and Bob had fought up into the ring, and all six of those guys started at it. So we just went ahead. I decided, let's put those six guys back in there in an elimination tag match the next week. And then that type of match, uh, as a guy got defeated, he left the ring. And the last guy in the ring is the guy that wins the match, and his team wins. So. Yeah, uh, it'd make a good match because it was such an exciting end to that match. The main event for the Southeastern title ended up in a disqualification of both Rob and Garvin because me and Big Bad John were in the ring as much as Rob and, jo- and Garvin were. So then uh, the second referee had to come down to try to stop it. We were having another brawl 
uh, like the one right before they had. And um, the second referee came down and they couldn't get us apart. And then finally, wrestlers started coming from the dressing room and it turned into a real brawl. The following Sunday, me and Rob are going to come back against Big Bad John and Ronnie Garvin in a cage. A cage match? Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So what was the attendance for this one? Uh, This one was over 5,000 again. Uh, wow. It wasn't quite as big as the Andre event, but mm-hmm. it was still over 5,000. And uh, we're just about packing that building uh, at 5,000. It doesn't hold a heck of a lot more than that. 5,500 uh, the week before really made it look like it was full. Still very, very good crowd. It, it really seems like you were on a roll, just hit after hit after hit. Did you, I mean... How did you, were you really in a buzz over what was happening? Yeah, I was, I was uh, thrilled, obviously. And, uh, you know, I just couldn't believe that we were just kind of really cranked up. And, uh, you know, Garvin had gotten over great. Big Bad John had gotten over great. You got a brand new guy, the Mongolian Stomper, who's going to light it up even bigger. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Bob Armstrong is back. Uh, we got a Cadillac tournament coming uh, in April. We've got the Harley race, the new world champion coming. Uh, we've got so many things that are just going to blow the roof off that building. I mean, it was a good time to be a Southeastern owner. And and still everybody around the nation knew what was happening there in Knoxville. And, and, and folks, I'm guessing because this has been in the past, folks were still trying to call to get in. Oh, rest, gosh, uh, man. Rest. Oh, every day. I had phone calls every day. And from great God, great stars, people that I had always wanted, I'd say, wow, I'd love to get that guy. And now he's calling and he's saying, Ron, I'd like to come in, man. Can I work for you? And I'm having to turn him down. I'm like, wow. wow, I don't have a spot, man. I don't have a spot. Good problem to have, but wow, it's yeah. just it was an amazing time frame that night, late 1976, all the way through 77, all the way through 88. It's just going to rocket, man. It's just wow. going to keep going. That's awesome. All right. I think it's time for that cold drink. We'll get a seat under the learning tree. Remind us once again, who asked the question and what was it about? Well, the question uh, was supposed to be answered last week, and it came from a lady named Barbara Clifton. And she asked, who do you think was the most important wrestler ever in southeastern Knoxville and why? So, geez, uh, that's a very difficult question to answer, simply because there were so many great wrestlers in southeastern from 1974 until late 1979. And uh, I, I can I can name quite a few off the top of my head. Uh, Bob Armstrong and Tor Tanaka, Ronnie Garvin. Uh, Danny Hodge been there, uh, Joe LaDue, The Assassin, Dick Steinborn, Tony Charles, Nelson Royal started for me there in 74 and worked in 75. Dick mm. Slater's going to be there. Bob Orton Jr.'s coming. Mr. Fuji's coming. The great Malenko. It just it just <laughs> went on and on and on. So, you know, in spite of all this, though, I got to say uh, to the lady here that, uh, one person sticks out to me is, is the one that probably really made it happen the most there. And then, and in fact, this person's face is on the billboards. We talked about that. I think the most important wrestler in Southeastern Knoxville history 
uh, was just starting for me in 1977, and that was yeah. the Mongolian Stomper. And I think he was the most important wrestler ever in Knoxville. <laughs> and there, there's several reasons why, Miss Clifton. You know, I, I like to kind of explain why I, I pick him. Uh, he had the look, man, that I, that almost scared people to death. And I'm sure people, a lot of them had nightmares after they saw him live in matches. <laughs> that a lot of people went home and woke up in the middle of the night, going, "Oh my God, man! I had, I saw his face." You know, he was just an outstanding heel, and and heels build territories. They're the ones that make it happen in territories. He was always in phenomenal shape, and he always looked like it, too. Not just looked like it, but he could wrestle. He could go two hours if he needed to. He could work with any baby face and have a great match. He was always 100% business. He cared more, actually, about what was happening in the territory and the size of the crowds than what was happening to him. And there was very few heels in the business that had a mindset like that. Mm, mm. He worked his gimmick to perfection. He protected his business. He never allowed anybody to say anything bad about wrestling. He was a very kayfabe in the early Southeastern days. And as time went by, some people became aware that he could speak English. But by then, they still respected who and what he was, man. At that point... They had seen what he could do, and uh, they didn't care that he could speak English. Uh, he stayed on top in the same territory for more than three years. That is really, really difficult for any heel to do that in any territory. It had it not been for the Knoxville War in 1979, he would have probably had an even longer run than three years as a top heel. I enjoyed working with him and dealing with him as a wrestling talent. Before he came, I had heard so many derogatory remarks from bookers and promoters about getting along with him, that he was difficult to get along with. But I'll be honest, I, I never experienced a single problem with the Stomper. In my opinion, he probably did more for Southeastern Knoxville to make it a huge success than anyone ever. His name was legendary in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. And still, even though he's no longer alive, He's still spoken of in that part of the country with great respect. People really respected him. So Archie Goldie, you know, was simply a -a one-of-a-kind wrestler. We were really all blessed back in those years to spend the years that we did working with him. That's amazing. And at some point, he started wearing headgear, like, that covered his ears. Yeah, yeah, because he uh, started having, the crowds were so loud. And when they would get uh, warning the baby face, uh, he would get the guy down and he'd beat him up. And and then the crowd would start go Ron go or go Bob go or whatever it was. And they'd just get louder and louder and louder. He would start to cover his ears. It was like keeping him from being able to do his thing. And then his manager, and I think it was probably Gorgeous George Jr. at that point, Mm -hmm. said uh, they put wrestling gear, headgear on him so that it covered his ears. And that was the reason for wearing that wrestling headgear is the, so the crowd noise didn't bother him anymore. He could continue beating you continually. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's no doubt. That's interesting. And I think a lot of younger folks might remember him, but possibly not without the headgear. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. And how revered this one man was. 
And all he had to do, he didn't even have to wrestle. He just walked out in front of the crowd and the crowd just went, oh my God. So that that's really, that's really awesome. All right. So these studcasts just keep getting better and better. And I'm looking forward to the next one as we do every week. And again, they're all free at tnstud.com, tnstud.com. On Facebook, you can like and follow Ron on the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud page and automatically become friends with a legend. You can do the same thing on his other Facebook page, author Ron Fuller Welch, and get all the info on Brutus, his chilling novel that many are calling the next Jaws. Get it at Amazon.com Brutus Novel or TNStud.com for the autographed copy. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at Ron Fuller Welch. Don't miss Super Studcast number 36, now available. Take the ride with Coco Beware on his remarkable journey from small town Tennessee to the WWE Hall of Fame, plus the very merry Fuller Brothers Christmas with stories of all kinds and special guest Jimmy Golden, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast gets you three hours for only $2.99. That is the best deal in wrestling. All right, another awesome show. And how do you top it? Where do we ride next week, Ron? Well, we're going to be wearing an owner hat for the next today's training. And uh, we're going to be visiting the sales manager, all the big wheels of WBIR TV in Knoxville, because the November 1976 rating book came in and they want to celebrate. And, uh, well, I'm more than happy to go down there and do that meeting with them. I can tell you that. And we're going to take a look at the week of January 16, 1977, where it's going to be a very unusual four-man cage match with Garvin and Big John against Rob and I. We're going to talk about the other matches and the results and the attendance of that week of January 16th. And we also have some more of those very rare actual audios for the next TV promoting that cage match card. Uh, we're going to hear from Big Bad John. I think I may be in one of those. Hmm. Uh, the learning tree question is, why Fuller for the ring name of my father and Rob and I? And uh, what's the story or the meaning behind that? Okay, interesting. TV ratings, actual audio from 44 years ago, cage matches, and why you guys are named Fuller? Sounds like another great one. We'll be here for it next week, no doubt, Ron. Good job. Well, thank you, Dave, for joining me, obviously, today and uh, every other day. I really appreciate man, being able to work with you. And thanks, as always, to everyone out there for listening. And hope you enjoyed the ride today. And don't forget to tell your friends to saddle up with us, by golly. I think there's a lot of people out there that would like this that don't hear it. And uh, take care of yourselves out there and others, everybody. May God bless us all. This is David Summers thanking you for riding with us today and reminding you that Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.